Hello and welcome to Socialism, the weekly Marxist podcast from the Socialist Party. What is scientific socialism and what can it teach us about the fight for socialist change today? Labour's left leadership failed to fight for the urgent political and democratic reforms needed in the party, a missed opportunity for working class political representation. In politics, mistakes in tactics begin with mistakes in ideas. That's why Marxists take ideas so seriously. As Karl Marx himself said, practice without theory is blind, theory without practice is sterile. In fact, the original name for Marxism was scientific socialism. In 1880, Marx's collaborator Friedrich Engels produced Socialism Utopian and Scientific, a pamphlet explaining the difference between those two trends in socialist thought. It was an introduction to some key scientific socialist ideas, from dialectical materialism to Marxist economics. Socialist struggle today could learn much from the mistakes of utopian socialism, old and new, and the rigour of scientific socialism. The Socialist Party's publishing house, Socialist Books, republished this classic last year, available from socialistbooks.co.uk. This episode of Socialism, one of our most popular from 2019, is a rerun of episode 18, Socialism, Utopian and Scientific. I'm here today with Ben Robinson from Socialist Books, which is the publishing house launched by the Socialist Party in 2017. And we've got a bit of a different type of podcast today, where we're going to be discussing the new book from Socialist Books, um, which is republishing Frederick Engels' classic Socialism, Utopian and Scientific. And so we wanted to do this podcast, I suppose, to encourage people to buy the book and to read the book, but also hopefully it'll be a resource to aid people with that reading and trying to understand it. So we're going to try and go through some of the main points that are drawn out in that book. So hello, Ben. Hello. (laughs) So... The book, Socialism, Utopian and Scientific, was first published in 1880, which is a long time ago, clearly. (laughs) Why do you think that now is a good time to be republishing it and for people to try and be reading and understanding it? Yeah, well, I think last week we saw in Trump's State of the Union address when he said that America will never become a socialist country. And I think... Why was he saying that? You know, probably every American president would have agreed with that statement, but Trump is having to be out there saying it. And I think it's because there is much more interest in socialist ideas. There's a real fear of socialism amongst the ruling classes, not only in America, but internationally. And I think that there's a searching out for what actually socialism means. Why is it different to capitalism? How can things be different? And so on. And I think... You know, what we've seen, for example, in Britain over the last decade or so was sort of movements, Clegmania, if anybody can remember that, you know, the sort of green surge. Now, today, the movement around Corbyn. I think there's a sort of feeling out of how is it possible to build an alternative. And I think that that is a part and parcel of the question of what sort of alternative is possible as well. We've seen that internationally as well with the development of Syriza and the Greek government with Podemos in Spain. Obviously last week's podcast was discussing the situation in Venezuela where a decade or so you know, there was a, an exploration of some of these ideas and trying to put some of these ideas into practice. And I think it's not only 
those specific situations, but I think as well in the realm of ideas, we've seen people like Paul Mason mm. praising some of the ideas that Engels takes up. Engels dates back to the early 1800s and reviving those for a modern day audience. And so I think the Engels' arguments sustain their sort of full validity. But I think it's more than that as well, actually, that it's not just taking up some of these ideas and explaining where they came from, but it's also an excellent introduction to Marxist ideas in general. Exactly what is capitalism? What is socialism? Why is socialism necessary? It was used throughout the workers' movement in Engels' lifetime as a basic introduction to what these ideas stand for. I think in Engels' introduction, he boasts that it outsold the Communist Manifesto during his time. You know, and I think that that was clearly because it was found useful then. And I think that a lot of those ideas still retain their relevance today. Of course, we just said that Marxism in general is an extremely modern idea and still retains its relevance. And I think that this, as an introduction to Marxism from one of Marx's co-thinkers, is an absolutely excellent place to start. I also think, by the way, that our edition is £5, so it's £7 cheaper than the next uh, edition. (laughs) And, you know, we want to make this material and the other material that we've produced as well as accessible as possible, as widely as possible, to help people get to grips with those ideas. Okay, so Engels talks about how, like every new theory needs to really, modern socialism had to first connect itself with the current ideas of the day. And he discusses the three great utopian socialists, Robert Owen, Saint-Simon and Fourier. So can you explain a bit who they were and why they were so significant at the time? Yeah, definitely. Well, I think these are the utopian socialists that are referred to in the title, if you like. And I think they were all active and alive in sort of analysing the movements that were taking place during their lifetimes. So Saint-Simon, apologies for our French listeners, <laughs> Saint-Simon was the first really to draw out what the actual class balance of forces was in the French Revolution. It was not only just the great mass against the elites, which of course it was, but it was actually the capitalist class, the bourgeois, who put themselves at the head of it, and the developing working class throughout that revolution as well, you know, and to draw out some of those distinctions. I think it's also interesting that in his experience of the French Revolution, he drew the analysis that the working class cannot take power, is not capable, and instead there should be a unification, if you like, of science and industry. And I think, again, this technocratic argument almost is something that is quite often repeated in the realms of some of the ideas about how Silicon Valley, etc., can change the world, that we just need to get rid of all politicians, and that we just need to rely on scientists and industry and technology to be able to develop things. But I think as well that Fourier was the first really if you like, to expand that analysis from not just looking at the French Revolution and looking at current events, but looking at how capitalism was developing from previous stages, previous sort of distinct stages of history and of class society, and of also providing some quite sharp analysis of what the present conditions are, for example. I mean, one of the 
phrases that Engels quotes from him in Socialism, Utopian and Scientific is this idea that poverty is born from superabundance. And, you know, you look around the world today where, I mean, we're sat here in London, you know, they're building huge tower blocks with luxury fittings wherever they are, and yet we're having a homeless crisis. Mm. And I think that's true not only in housing, but in all sorts of realms internationally as well. And Robert Owen was a capitalist, was a manufacturer. He worked his way up and developed He's particularly associated with the mill in Lanarkshire in Scotland. Again, apologies to our Scottish listeners. (laughs) (laughs) And what he really raised was that it was possible not only to plan the production, but also to use the profit that had developed from that in order to raise the conditions of the workforce and was able to develop full childcare facilities, schools, Nobody was wanting in the mill and what have you. It was almost sort of like a model village. And I think that the role that he played, I guess today we would describe it as almost trying to build like an island of socialism within capitalism, I think showed, if you like, that these things were not just nice ideas, but that they were possible to develop. How long scale they were possible to develop for was something that Owen himself encountered with his eventual ruin. But also I think that 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 didn't deter Robert Owen, that he went from being lauded in Queen Victoria's court to being completely shunned by society because he saw through what was going on and he saw through his ideas, his support for the working class was, I think, president at one of the first trade union congresses in Britain, fought for legal reforms and so on. But I think we would describe them as utopians because of their approach in a way which was understandable because of where they were. These were people putting forward pioneering ideas, but it was almost like their approach was, well, we've had these ideas, why shouldn't they be accepted? One of Robert Owen's most radical pamphlets was addressed not only to the communists and socialists throughout Europe, but also to Queen Victoria and her responsible advisers, because they thought that because these were sensible ideas, why should anybody reject them? And I think, again, I mentioned Syriza earlier, we've seen when the left Greek government was initially elected and entered into negotiations with the EU and their backers over the debts. And Varoufakis, who was the finance minister, then essentially went in saying, um, well, this is, you know, we're not going to be able to pay back these debts under these conditions. This is illogical what you're doing. But of course, they didn't care about logic. You know, they didn't care about arguments. They cared about getting their money back and driving down the conditions of the Greek working class and the vicious conditions that they implemented there. So I think we have to rightly praise the contributions and draw the contributions that these people made when they were first making those analysis, but then also say that those ideas were only the embryo, really, of what socialism can be. Okay, so going on from that then, the book then talks about how Marxism takes those utopian ideas, really, but gives them what we'd say is a scientific grounding. What do we mean by that? Well, I mentioned that all of those people were contemporaries, well, lived through the French Revolution. And so they saw those dramatic events. And not only that, but also that they saw capitalism seizing power in its most naked expression, if you like, and that they relied on the working class, the proto-working class to do that. But then as soon as they had fulfilled, they'd achieved what capitalism wanted them to achieve then the working class was crushed and thrown aside and all of their slogans of liberty, equality, fraternity, etc. were ground into the dust. And I think that these 
the French Revolution, the movements, the turbulent times that they lived through showed all these contradictions that exist within society and have been developed to a much greater extent today. And these events were the impulse to the development of these ideas, rather than it just being that any of those utopian socialists were very intelligent people, which I'm not disputing, but that it was actually because of the conditions that they lived through, that material conditions determine consciousness. So I think it's no coincidence that, for example, two of the greatest scientists, Newton and Einstein, were both accused during their lifetime of plagiarism, because those ideas were a product, their analysis was, their theories were a product of the conditions that they were going through and were a reflection of the state of the development of those sciences. You know, Marx and Engels were the contemporaries of Darwin, of the big developments of chemistry and physics that happened in the 19th century and which were really being driven by the development of the productive forces. And I think all of those different sides of the development of materialist thinking of the steps forward that science took is also a part of and part and parcel of why Marxism developed and why scientific socialism, as Engels refers to it in the pamphlet, developed. In all of those instances, they sort of built on the positive content of what had come before. They explained where that content had come from, but also drew them out to the much fuller extent alongside the development of the material conditions of the productive forces and really demonstrated and set out the way that that things could develop in the future. Okay, then the second chapter discusses dialectics. And I think that for many socialists beginning to learn about socialism, Mm. dialectics can be one of the most intimidating subjects (laughs) to try and understand So what is dialectics and why is it an important thing to understand? Well, I mean, with this question, as with all the others, like we're really skimming through what Engels is talking about in the book. We should also have another podcast (laughs) that's more detail on dialectics. No, definitely. (laughs) But I think in the basics of it, dialectics is the logic of change, that contradictions are a real thing, that they're a real expression of reality but there is also a logic to those contradictions. And we see that in politics all of the time. I mean, I mentioned Donald Trump earlier. The candidate who was the most likely to beat Trump in those elections was Bernie Sanders, who was calling for socialism, was calling for a political revolution, etc. And there are polls that highlighted that. In Britain, over the last couple of months, we've seen Theresa May lose a vote in Parliament the most heavy defeat ever for a government, and yet the following day survive a vote of confidence in the House. And there's all of these things which do not necessarily add up, do not easily fall into one box or another. And I think in the same way that I referenced Darwin earlier, Darwin took the classification of individual species, individual animals, and then it explained how they were all linked up. They hadn't just been created like that, that they were a product of their conditions and of the reason why they needed to develop. And I think, in a sense, dialectics is about explaining that and about highlighting how those things can develop. So, as a basic example, what a kettle does... (laughs) I'm a big fan of tea. What What a kettle does is applies a certain amount of heat to a lot of water. And after a certain amount of time, that water will stop being liquid within the kettle, but will start becoming steam that's coming out of the kettle. 
that is a, just a very brief example of what we describe as quantity into quality, the idea that things can build up and that building up can last for so long. But then once it reaches a certain stage, you know, 100 degrees Celsius in the case of the kettle, then that change, then that qualitative change takes place. And yeah, that the water changes state from a liquid to a gas. I think similarly, you know, we discussed the French Revolution briefly earlier and the impact that that had had. And I think the capitalism did not just appear fully formed. It developed and it began and it started off to develop on a small scale, these sorts of means of production and the development of exchange and what have you. But then it developed to such an extent that it was coming up against the boundaries of the state, of the pre-existing structures of the other social systems that existed alongside capitalism. And so then what you had was a change from quantity into quality that you had the capitalist revolution of the French Revolution and in other countries, obviously, as well. And that completely overturns the boundaries, completely transforms the situation. And I think dialectics is about seeing those processes in motion, about seeing how these changes do develop And also then, once you have an understanding of how processes can develop, then that is extremely useful to be able to say, well, okay, but this can happen next. To be able to say that, for example, on the one hand, within Britain, you have the Labour Party, which has people like Jeremy Corbyn in it, who is pro-worker, who has helped produce the movement, helped produce the manifesto that was so successful in the last general election. On the other hand, you have Tony Blair, who's the former Prime Minister in Britain, took us to a war, is universally hated. And those two positions are seemingly contradictory, and they are contradictory, but they also exist within the same political party. And that that contradiction is, if you like, at the heart of not only the situation within Labour, but the situation as a whole within British politics. Okay, then in the third part of the book, Engels kind of brings together all the ideas that we've discussed and outlines what are the key ideas of Marxism. So why does he argue that capitalism is unsustainable? So capitalism is a economic, a social and political system. And Engels makes the point really that what capitalism did what its historically progressive role was, if you like, compared to previous systems, was that it hugely developed the means of production. It took a situation where production was largely an individual exercise, you know, that you would have one farmer or a small group of farmers or whatever you're working together, developing their own tools, maybe getting them from a local blacksmith or what have you, to a more collective production beginnings of the developments of workshops, of factories, and so on. And so those big developments in the means of production, which were based on increases in science, based on previous developments and increases, is what is the driving factor within capitalist society at large. And I think, just as a sort of side note, it's incredible that Engels and Marx were raising these 150 years ago. Mm. When you look at the situation now where we have individuals like Elon Musk and Richard Branson, you know, literally with the ability to organise sending people to space for profit, the fact that things have moved on so much further, but that Engels and Marx were talking about these processes so long ago is incredible, really. But I think as well that 
alongside that driving situation that is pushing forward society, then you also have regular crisis that results, as Fourier said, in superabundance leading to want. And I think the basis of that is the fact that instead of individuals producing for themselves as they were under previous systems, then they're, they're working for a wage and they are producing for a capitalist or a collection of capitalists. And that the profit that is being generated there is really the unpaid labour of the working class. And what that means is that workers cannot buy back the products of their own labour, can't buy it back. So then that limitation of capitalism needing to sell in order to continue to produce is a crisis which constantly raises its head. But I think as well that crises have been a factor in capitalism since its dawn. That contradiction has been a key factor, but that doesn't mean, obviously, that capitalism just ended with one big crisis. You know, Mm -hmm. it develops on. And what you see throughout that process is an increasingly small number of companies controlling increasingly large amounts of the means of production of capital and so on. And you have this sort of tendency towards trust, as Engels talks about them, collections of capitalists within one industry working together and then ultimately towards monopolies. And you look at the example recently of the development of the internet, a new, completely new area for capitalism to exploit. And yet in the last 25, 30 years, you can already see huge domination of companies like Amazon, like Google, like Facebook have come from nowhere really to become some of the biggest companies in the world and in effect unchallengeable. But I think Within those individual capitalists, within those individual companies, there is a constant race, a constant competition between themselves over who can extract the most surplus value, which means who can really develop the most efficient means of production. And that constant race advances society as a whole, advances capitalism, but then also makes sure that these crises are deeper and more thoroughgoing and more severe and drag down more and more people around the world. And I think that what Engels highlights really is that what capitalism has done fundamentally is that the process of production has been taken from an individual level to a social level, that production is socialised, but that we still have the means of consumption that are hangovers from previous societies, that it's on an individual basis. And that contradiction really is at the heart of why capitalism does have limits, even on how far it itself can develop new technologies, can develop the means of production, can develop society as a whole. And so we see a partial recognition of that in the fact that Every so often, for means entirely necessary to capitalism, you can see nationalisation, that you can see the taking over of industries, of companies by not an individual capitalist, but by the representative of capitalism as a whole within a nation, which is the state. And so, for example, we saw that in the 2008 crisis with the nationalisation of a large chunk of the banks. But also, you know, if you look in, especially from a British point of view, if you look at previous services which have been nationalised, such as the health service, then that was nationalised in order to defend the interests of capitalism, in order to stave off the threat of the working class going much further. And so I think that Engels talks about nationalisation of the taking over of 
industries by the collective rather than the individual as a sign of the encroaching socialist revolution. And I think that is definitely correct and is a move away from the anarchy that is existent throughout capitalism with the market, with the competition and so on, to the organisation that is sometimes necessary for individual services. I mean, you know, you look at the basics of roads, of mail and so on, that these are or have previously been state-owned. And I think the point is that socialism really would be the scene through of that process of of completing the transformation from socialised production in conflict with the individual consumption to socialised production and consumption and provision for all to be able to meet the needs of everybody. We would add today as well to be able to meet the needs of the environment. Engels makes the point that that central task can only be carried out by the working class, by the proletarians, as he refers to them in Socialism, Utopian and Scientific, because of their role both in the workplace, in the socialised means of production, but also because they face the consequences of the crisis, the hardest experience of these struggles, but also the experience of collective struggle in the workplace, and that the working class has the most to gain from this transformation, from meeting everybody's needs. Jeff Bozos is not interested in uh, <laughs> sorting out world poverty or in looking after the majority of the population, you know, that it is us who suffer, but also us that can develop society in a much more planned basis to meet the needs of people around the world. And I think that is, in essence, what Engels is talking about. Obviously, we saw what, 50 years after this pamphlet was produced, we saw the Russian Revolution, we saw the working class take power and a bit of a glimpse of what is possible there. We do have other titles which develop those ideas more and look at the experience of the Russian Revolution, you know, and I'm sure that there'll be other podcasts as well from the Socialist Party which discuss these as well. But I think, you know, really today we've sort of given a brief outline of what is in Socialism, Utopian and Scientific. It's a very short book, but it's also very rich with ideas. These have been the main themes, but there's lots of things that developed more throughout the course of the book and alongside doing this podcast we'll be producing some question and answers for discussion groups to look at and for them to use we're also offering a reading group discount if people are buying five or more copies we want these ideas not just to be thought about but to be discussed and to be used in the fight for socialism absolutely thanks very much ben socialism is produced by the socialist party the England and Wales section of the Committee for a Workers' International. Today we heard from Ben Robinson. This rerun, first aired on the 12th of February 2019, was edited by Nick Hart. The Socialist Event of the Year will be Socialism 2020. It's an open forum of discussion and debate over four days, the 20th to the 23rd of November. Join hundreds of socialists, trade unionists and working class fighters to discuss the way forward in this unprecedented crisis of capitalism. We're scheduling it online, but if in-person sessions become possible, you can upgrade your ticket nearer the time. Read more and book now at socialism2020.net. You can find further reading for this episode in the notes in your podcast app, and at socialistparty.org.uk forward slash podcast. If you want to get in touch, email socialismpodcast at socialistparty.org.uk. Do you agree with the policies and actions the Socialist Party is fighting for? 
We need you. Send us your details at socialistparty.org.uk forward slash join. If you live outside England and Wales and want to join the fight for socialism in your country, contact the Committee for a Workers International by visiting socialistworld.net. Socialism, the podcast, has no wealthy backers. We rely only on funding from the working class, which maintains our political independence. So help us take the fight to big business. You can make a regular donation or a one-off payment at socialistparty.org.uk forward slash donate. Till next time, solidarity.